Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. If you notice that someone didn't do like their due diligence, like they might have maybe jumped into the UI too fast. Like how how does your team um, like approach like a critique of the thinking pro? Sorry, I'm going to repeat that question when he's done hitting the window. This is my life now. <laughs> Quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the way of product design. I'm Caden Damiano. We know design is valuable, but how can you unlock its true value and tie your design work to business impact? This show interviews product designers, product managers, and tech leads from places like Google, Domo, Divi, IBM, Intuit, and Uber to find out what makes a valuable product designer and how you can be one as well. Listeners, I have another great discussion, a hot takes episode with Denise Hurtado, who is a design project lead at USAA. That correct? I just assumed you're a design project <laughs> lead based off your LinkedIn post. No, I, I am. Um, so I am a designer. It um, I do work in the fintech industry uh, for a for um, Fortune 100 company. Um, and I do function like a design lead. Perfect. Well, is there anything else you want to uh, talk about, your, tell about yourself, uh, introduce yourself a little bit more to the listener about like your path into 
the field, how do you how you got to where you are today? Sure. So um, as I was mentioning, I work as a design lead, and specifically in the product development space. Um, my focus area is telematics and creating telematics products. And in the day to day, I split my time really doing two different sets of things. There's a strategic, generative side, and then also the iterative, tactical work that is at a cadence basis, like doing critiques over and over and over again, um, getting things done. Um, like most product designers, the goal is always to address user and market needs. Um, and we do that by advocating what the user need is, but also leveraging and like figuring out that middle ground between the technical side and the business side, all to make better, um, business decisions, the best ones that we can make. Um, before that, I worked at Coca-Cola for a bit in unrelated um, fields. I, I did print design for them. And honestly, for a second, I thought that book design, specifically artist book design, was going to be my thing um, because it, it, there's so much emphasis on the interaction of like flipping through a book and, and playing with an object that is not played how it normally is played. Um, but now I'm I'm in auto insurance, um, <laughs> which is very different. Um, but what I found with product design is that it's it's more intentional, and there is this tactical side of it that is objective, and it it, it just for me it's this good balance between the objective and the subjective, which I find really interesting to have to navigate. Yeah, that's what I like a lot about product design as well is the like good product design work is grounded in something like actual constraints, um, which gives you a little bit of certainty, but it allows you to understand like what limits you're pushing. Whereas if, if it's just art, you know, you're not exactly pushing limits. You're just kind of going off and <laughs> doing your own yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot more exploratory. Um, for me, another thing I'd point out is that, um, product design is it, like like you were saying good product design is one way to mitigate business risk and I think um, not everyone thinks about what we do in that way um, but in order to mitigate business risk in order to do that really uh, we, we have to be as objective as possible when it's appropriate to be objective um, an example of that is like when we look at the data to inform our decisions when we look at user research, but it also shows up in the regular, um, whether it be on the tactical end or more on the um, strategic end, um, those design decisions that we're making, if they're objective, then we are helping the business mitigate risk. And, and that's, that's one way I like to think about what we do also. Yeah, um, all right. Hey, bud. So, quarantine life. <laughs> What's up, buddy? I think you He's want adorable. something. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he is. Um, hang on, I'm going to pause the yeah. recording. My bad. Sorry to sure. interrupt the flow. All right. I didn't realize you spoke Spanish. 
Oh, you're sorry, recording already. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll keep this part of the episode. I, I, I'm trying to keep all the quirks in it for fun. But, um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I do speak Spanish. We speak Spanish to him. Uh, but uh, Crisis Averted <laughs> gave him some... Uh, <laughs> Gave him some uh, gomitas or how you say that, fruit snacks. Sometimes, yeah, like I yeah, keep, gomitas, yeah. Mm-hmm. I keep, I keep, uh, I'm forgetting the English version of all, all the words that I usually use, and <laughs> <laughs> you're already doing much better than my husband. So it's great. You're in a great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's just been my life. Actually, if you listen through any of season three of the podcast, mm-hmm. you're going to hear um, what sounds like a bird in the background, and it's my mm-hmm. and it's my son making elephant noises. <laughs> so, that's great. <laughs> so whenever I uh, whenever I tell uh, my wife I'm doing like a recording an episode, I'm like, okay, don't put uh, Disney's elephants on or any elephant related media while I'm recording. <laughs> Because then he'll just start making these super loud, like, whales, which are supposed to be elephant noises. That's hilarious. <laughs> Sorry. So I digress. Let's uh, let's go back to uh, the interview. But I just thought that was important <laughs> to keep in there. Like, what goes into the behind the scenes <laughs> of making these things happen? Um, so, like, the, yeah, like, the... Good product design mitigates business risk um, because, like, the business outcome that good product design brings to the table is like a good performance in the market. Um, mm-hmm. When I was interviewing Ryan, Ryan Rumsey, who uh, wrote the Business Thinking for Designers book uh, that just came out for published by Envision, he has a very succinct definition of what a good product is. And mm-hmm. a good product is adopted. That's mm-hmm. it. Like it's it's something that's used, and um, like everything's so commoditized now, especially like in the fintech space. It used to be that mm-hmm. you could only use Wells Fargo or Chase or something like that, but um, now like every little fintech's becoming a bank, mm-hmm. and <laughs> it's getting a little bit more competitive. Like you have to provide a good customer experience. Mm-hmm. in the fintech space now like y- you can't just be like big and throw a lot of money towards advertising anymore it's it's a lot like yeah. the product has to perform better and be designed and like developed better than the mm-hmm. competition now mm-hmm. um and i i think a, another i can wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying and also in um Ryan's definition of adoption. I think the second layer when you are working in a highly regulated space like um, financials and banking and auto insurance is that it also has to be compliant um, with the law. And that's an aspect that is not in the forefront every single time um, when the design industry just talks about design, because it's not something we mostly think about. But when you are designing in this highly regulated spaces, one way you're mitigating risk is yes, creating things that are adopted, but also creating things that are not gonna cause litigation later down the road. Um, Because whether or not 
a good example, honestly, would be like accessibility. An auto product has to be accessible to everyone. Everyone, everyone, no matter what. If accessibility isn't done correctly, then that product isn't available to everyone. That's a clear example of you got to get it right from the beginning. Um, and the design is a good driver and, and a good avenue for making sure that that risk is mitigated appropriately when it needs to get done. Yeah, totally. Um, so the decision making that gets you to that point of making a well-adopted, compliant product that doesn't mislead consumers is really the the uh, impetus for starting this episode. Uh, you wrote an article um, a little while back called Why Only Critiquing Mockups Isn't Enough. So it's, the, it's your, uh, your TED Talk submission, I'm guessing. But yes. uh, <laughs> I'm going to read a line from here. Yeah. Um, critique the work and not the designer. Um, I've always been slightly annoyed by this line, especially in the context of where I work, a corporate monolith or a machine. It's become part of a trendy repertoire that we say, which doesn't actually mean anything. To say to critique the work and not the designer is to say that you shouldn't lie or you shouldn't kill. It's common sense, but some people, some folks are going to do it anyways. And I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit on like why we should go behind beyond work, like in air quotes. Um, when we critique the work and not the designer and do so literally, uh, we take it to mean that we should not, we should only critique what we can physically see on the screen that is being presented to us. By consequence, we are, are, to exclude all the work that is not shown to us. Often this means we won't review the process work that was done to get to that point. So uh, here's my question. Like the whole like critique the work and not the designer is obviously something to protect people's feelings. I think that's why we say it and uh, very political design directors say it to make it sound like, you know, they're trying to protect their designers psychological safety and stuff but um to engage someone's process in a way is to engage someone's decision making (laughs) at some point and that means that that opens up uh designers uh to be a little bit more vulnerable about being wrong um and being publicly shown that they're wrong and that their decision making is wrong so in a way like in order to make good products are you implying that we need to um critique the designer as well um yes and i want to point out first and foremost that um when we're talking about and you and i know this but just for the listener in case they haven't read the full well you know and I'll if link they in never the show get notes. to there, thanks. Um, context, context. Yeah. Yes, context, context. Um, you know, when we're talking about critiquing the designer, it's not about them as a person. We're not talking about critiquing um, the way that they look or anything that's protected, anything like that. Like that's not the point of it. Um, but yes, we should critique their decision making. A designer's decision making, whether it be a designer, developer, business owner all of the decisions we take carry some inherent risk. So 
if we're not making the right set of decisions that are going to lead us to the final, this beautiful thing that is what we're going to present to the business um, as designers, then we're not mitigating the risk the best that we can. And during critiques, there's usually, you know, designers listening to this and you and I know that there's always that spectrum of um, work or feedback that is based on opinions and then based on facts. And so it's really, we don't need to debate the fact part. We need to debate the opinion part to figure out what is the best decision we can make because the more people involved in that decision-making to a point, the better, air quotes around the better, um, decision will be made. Did that make sense? I can re-explain it. <laughs> I feel <laughs> no. like I talked in a circle. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I think it's, uh, you're also covering your bases for any uh, trolls on the internet, I'm sure. Uh, just <laughs> My natural. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's liability insurance. Yeah, so I'm going to agree with you that um, good the result of good products is good decisions and uh, a larger design team is going to tease out that there is gaps in thinking right but um, you know there's like an art form to doing like a good critique right Um, yeah but okay so like let's say that you're going into a critique and the designer just maybe jumped a little too fast into UI. And there's obvious gaps in thinking. How do you start approaching like reframing the critique to mm-hmm. be more of a critique of the decision-making process and then like recalibrating their process, maybe helping them uh, leave the critique to go answer some unanswered questions and like go about like that? that that's a fair point. Um- or for a question, I think number one is always the point of a critique is really everyone there is there to help either the designer or help the work. So if you look at it from that lens, then um, honesty is number one. If someone jumped too far into an art, like they're doing UI and they skipped step B and C and they're at D, um, calling it out bluntly is our approach um and you do it in a way that is not um i'd say problematic it's if that makes any sense um so an example of that would be um this is good exploration but perhaps we need to take it back a couple steps and understand how you got here or why um you would want to make x y z decision um the more tastefully or tactfully, I guess is the better word there. Um, You want to point out, you don't ever want to come out and just say that accusation without having um, an argument for it. So if you're, if I'm going to, for example, say that, hey, you didn't think this through, I can't just say, hey, you didn't think this through. I have to say, hey, you didn't think this through, and this is why I think you didn't think this through. Reason A, reason B, and reason C. And because of reason B, for example, um, we need to go back and think that, because reason B is really important, and this is what happens if we don't get it right. 
Um, that's one way to address it directly. Um, the other way is just reframing um, the session itself or the critique itself, um, where depending on the area, depending on the company, every company has a whole, their own different standards, things like that. But one thing you can do is make sure that certain checkpoints have been made before you bring things to a specific critique. Um, so for example, um, if someone wants to critique the UI that they made or that they're exploring, they had ha they must first bring in information architecture, for example, um, before they can bring UI to that to a critique session. Uh, and you can build checkpoints like that that force people to go through the motions and force people to bring each piece of it. Um, so do you make it like a requirement of like every uh, project that like if you've made it uh, to the pixels of the UI that you have at least gone through some like rough information architecture step mm -hmm. in the process? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that that step was brought into critique. So you can't just do IA or excuse me, uh, information architecture map or whatever, however you guys call it. Um, and then the only thing that the team sees is UI. You have to bring in each object, each artifact into the critique session. Mm, okay. And you do it in stages. You don't, waiting at the end is gonna be more um, laborious than it has to be. If you do it in stages and steps as you do it, then you know we're, we're mitigating risk as we go instead of all at once. Okay, so like a good way. I'm so maybe for the listener, um, understanding that you need to be able to refer to some sort of architecture document because you are every every um, initiative that you're working on is going to be um, built on top of some kind of back end that's going to influence like what data is going to be available that you could display in the UI and um, no that makes sense but you don't like to show it all at once and then have them digest it like you just speak to little bits of it as a t at a time while you're going through the work as well I'd yeah, also that say sense. that um, if I can jump in there that sometimes going one layer back so right now we've only mentioned um the visual design aspect of it and then also the information architecture aspect of it. Um, there may be cases where you even need to go further than that. Um, for example, um, service blueprints or, um, or even a step further than that would be things like um, just breaking down this abstract space that you're working in if you are um, and using frameworks like like the Val framework um, if that makes any sense. There's also, um, yeah. So how about you explain like what the Val framework is? Like, like what Val is in like V-O-W-E-L, like A-E-I-O-U? Yeah. So um, each letter stands for a different lens of the project or problem space that you're um, trying to address. Um, letter A, so, a would stand for activities, 
E is environment, I is interactions, O is objects, and U is users. And for each category, you go in and um, you would fill it out based on your problem space. Um, you'd list all the activities, all the environments that your user would do XYZ job in, things like that. When you filled it out, then you have a, um, because you're using mo like words, it's you'd have a word map of that is a tangible art artifact to a non-tangible space. It helps break it down and align everyone that's looking at it and have these discussions about what are the things that you have to think about when you're considering the specific lens. From there, you can then use this to define scenarios, personas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that you have to then explore to understand what is that member experience or that user experience the, um, to help solve that problem. And from there, then you can create information architecture arguments. Then you can start looking into the UI. Um, but first, you have to understand the problem. And you might have to run it through more than one methodology. That's just one. But the point is really to understand it the best you can. OK, yeah, so approaching like every project with this framework mm -hmm. so that you at least know like what you are approaching, like how you're approaching the problem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, establishing like the, the technology constraints or maybe the like the constraints that you're trying to push with the design and then um, making like establishing like what workflows are you trying to optimize? Mm -hmm. Which is a lot better than like, oh, the PM gave us these requirements. We need to be able to show this data. And we're like, okay, well, why are you, why do you need to like put it in a table like this? Like, uh -huh. uh, what problem are you solving by showing like date added to the system? Uh -huh. Oh, I don't know. I didn't think about that. Okay, well, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have to think about the workflow that you're trying to optimize or there's no need for this feature, right? So, um, yeah. Yeah, the mm -hmm. that that sounds like a good framework. And then you had like some other ways that you could help frame up. Like, what else does your uh, team do to frame up critiques? We do Val framework. We'll do journey mapping. We'll do service mapping. In each designer, if they're working on um, the way that we break it up. Each designer can work on their own work stream, or it's a team of designers and you have a design lead um, who's in charge of that work stream and helping everyone under them like, be going in the direction that we need to go. Um, so sometimes it's an individual work, or sometimes it's a teamwork. I want to point that out because it's for an individual, it can be a lot to do by yourself if you don't have the skill sets to do this work if you don't know how to do it. Um, it's always easier to tackle this as a team if it's the first time everyone's doing it. I want to point that out mm -hmm. um, as I list off a whole bunch of frameworks that are massive. <laughs> uh, an example of that is journey mapping. Um, that's essentially when you, it's, you can layer journey mapping on top of the Val framework. Um, the Val framework, you can use that underneath or underneath isn't the right word, but rather as the foundation 
to then build out the journey mapping, which the point of the journey mapping is to understand um, things that you've captured over time for the user, mm -hmm. which is different than service blueprinting, which is, yes, you're doing it, you're capturing a lot of the same things that are gonna be captured in a journey map, but the intent of that one, the vantage point is to look at it from a technical slash system perspective. So when you do all these three things, a lot of it is overlapping, but because the vantage point is different, you're getting different perspectives of the same problem space and you're covering um, different angles and you're looking at the same problem very differently and it helps mitigate risk, which is what we keep going back to um, because you see what you've missed in the other framework. Yeah, so it's using multiple frameworks to get different perspectives. Um, which allows you to find, like, establish like what needs to be done. Um, I did another interview with uh, Jonah Tolley, and he talked about like he's not a big fan of like prescribed processes, right? It's more about you know first do your due diligence, understand the problem, which you know journey mapping and a lot of these like systems thinking type exercises mm -hmm. really help you do that, and then process will kind of come out of the woodwork of like what activities you need to do to address mm -hmm. the problem space, like once you understand it. So that makes a lot of sense. I'm gonna, so how do you, I'm gonna set up this, I'm gonna like ask the question then kind of give it a little more context based off your article, but like how do you, how do you balance the velocity and quality of critiques because design teams might have critique as like a, a set like hour or like mm -hmm. ritual like twice a week um, set meetings where like you have a critique blocked off on the calendar um, to increase like frequency of critiques for like rapid iterations and stuff like that but how do you maintain quality and mm -hmm. here's why I'm asking this question because sometimes I see like I I see design work in like seasons. If like you're doing the design work right, you're not always like in the pixels. You're not always like coming up with wireframes and mocks or even like journey map artifacts. Sometimes you're in the weeds of like research um, and you're synthesizing data and you might not have anything for critique in the traditional sense of like having stuff to show to people for like a month or two months. And uh, for me, that's kind of frustrating when there's like hard requirements of like, hey, you need to have something for critique at least once per month. And I, then I'm like, well, then I feel like we're just prescribing to like a mm -hmm. ritual rather than intentionality. Um, in, in your article, um, you mentioned that like, above a certain threshold of quality, it doesn't really matter how how the work is executed on the screen. However, it's how the story got pieced together that really showcases the designer's mastery of the skill and the opportunities for development. And you, and I quoted this um, when I first saw your article that like to illustrate what I mean, let's use some basic math. You could add like this to get to 10. One plus one plus one plus one to 10 equals 10 or like this, like one plus one plus one plus one plus one plus two equals 10 or like this one plus three plus one. So you, you just <laughs> show that like, <laughs> um, 
getting to 10, there's a lot of different processes. A lot of people, they might just do UI and then just bang their head against a brick wall for multiple weeks, but they're showing up to critique and eventually Uh they figure it out. That's kind of like a brute force method or you can do zero plus 10 and you just do a lot of like upfront, like discovery work. And it just, it's very clear, like what is a good iteration. Um, but yeah, like how do you how do you handle velocity and quality um, on your team to like maintain like some intentionality in the work? So it's it, it's a complicated answer <laughs> because it's one part of it is also you're managing personalities at that point. Um, well, at some of that point, um, because some individuals can move faster than others naturally. And that's not to say that um, that designer is better than the other. It's just how fast you can crank work out. However, there is a threshold in that. Too slow means you're not doing anything. So that needs to get addressed on a, on a different avenue. Um, the other side of that is um, making sure that the work is happening and that the quality of work is happening. So you have to structure critique in a way that is flexible, but also demanding. And when I say flexible, it means critique may not always be an artifact that we're showing, even if it's not, um, if it's like a diagram, like information architecture, or um, it doesn't have to be that. It could also just be a conversation about what happened, what you did, and why you did it. Why are you thinking about it this way? Things like that. I think cr- that type of critique is still valid, even if there's nothing to talk, even if there's nothing to point at. This conversation, and if you think about critique as a way to help the work and help each other, you don't need something to point out. You can just talk about it. Um, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I really like that. Uh, so maybe talking about like your research plan, Yeah. like critiquing, like how you designed your research plan or maybe even critiquing like what you did that week. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's less, you know, I mean, Within reason, right? Because I, I'm sure like some junior designers might feel like a little bit like their process is being uh, critiqued a little too much. And I think you and I have talked about this offline, like that uh, felt like juniors aren't being allowed to like be confident in their process and their, their process being critiqued too much. But I do like the idea of if there's nothing to show, like you're, you're maybe you're still like in a thinking phase, like synthesis phase, just discussing the ideas that you're working on. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, not exactly your process because I don't like critiquing process. I think everyone works differently and there's like a hundred different ways mm-hmm. to approach design and define problems. There's actually like multiple design artifacts that do the same job, mm-hmm. right? Um, one thing that's really hilarious is um, design agencies that will private label very common design activities like the heart model or mm-hmm. or empathy maps and they'll like brand it as their thing. <laughs> when it's not, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, th- I think, it's, yeah, it's maybe it's more about the, the merit of the idea. Like 
critiquing the idea like, hey, this is what I'm prioritizing in my work. I really feel like this is a direction that the product should go and mm-hmm. this is how I'm approaching it. And then it's more of like a mastermind session rather than a critique where the whole team's helping you with your thinking. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way to phrase it. Um, I'd also add on that it's a good opportunity to ask any questions. Like, where do you, where do you have doubts um, in what you know, you don't know if you should make a left turn or a right turn. That's okay to bring up in a critique, um, especially if it's framed as a, hey, this time together that we have, it's to talk and to look at things and, and to make sure that everyone has what they need in order to move forward, um, including answering questions, whatever they are. And hopefully as a team, you can come together and answer that question. And if you can't, then that means you know we got to ask for help outside of the team and that happens and that's okay that's normal yeah no i you just gave me an idea that i want to explore might be a new design ritual my private label it is my thing (laughs) i just create some some ip (laughs) but like a more of like a design mastermind type meeting Mm -hmm. where it's less about critique but it's like the design team coaching each other through like thinking yeah. through initiatives like okay like what what is your product team working on and I feel like you're in the scrum team model and it's like okay well my PM we were discussing like these like three initiatives and we think that we could accomplish like one of them this year um, I'm of the opinion that um, we should have like self implementation guides for our software that we should start like developing those and then asking like, okay, like, well, what, what led you to this conclusion? And then you just start talking through it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the team could like actually coach that designer mm-hmm. yeah. on their decision quality rather than critique it because mm-hmm. critique has a lot of baggage. This is why I was so excited about doing this episode was I really, um, a lot of critique is a artifact of art school Mm-hmm. of like a like a graphic design type workflow and i i think it gets pretty subjective but i when i think when we go for critique for law designers it's when it, critique isn't needed at that time it's more of a coach a coaching mm-hmm. session like you should be coaching the designer and you say and you can say like oh yeah we could do that during critique um but there's just too much baggage of like, okay, well, we need to like criticize the work and then that's how we learn. But, or you could just ask better questions that let them come to that conclusion on their own by helping them think through a problem, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like supporting like decision making and thinking rather than even talking about the work at all, right? It's just like, ha- it's it's helping them work through like how they perceive the work, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I don't know. Like, am I missing anything? Like, it's I'm working through a new idea. <laughs> Sorry, you're you're, you're going to be fodder for a new idea I'm synthesizing. But um, no, I I think you're I think you're spot on, and I think we're aligned as well. Um, I think that I understand that the term critique has a lot of baggage. I think though that um, 
you have two options there. Either you kick it to the curb and like make something new, or um, you you fix critique. Um, people can't see I'm making air quotes around fix, but really what I mean there is just click delete and like restart the file, but still call it critique. Um, and for there, that's I think that's the approach that my team has taken, even though I don't think we've ever talked about it openly, to be frank. I'm just realizing that now. Um, but we are critiques. We call them critiques. They are two hour sessions every week. Um, some weeks are more than once. But what it is, it's a time to come together and talk about things. That's really the point. Not everyone talks every week. It's expected that um, you do bring things up at the appropriate cadence. Um, but that is up to the designer's discretion. Like if they have nothing to say this week, that's cool. No one's going to judge you about it. But the whole point is to talk about what's going on in your project, talk about what's going on in your work stream and um, come together and, and help each other. That's how we've framed it. And that's what's worked for us. And in our space, because the projects that my team handles two to three products at a time, um, which each, with each project having its own lead, um, but they're all very closely related. So if you are on a team that is working on more than one project and all the projects are closely related but independent from one another, you might find that one person learned this little detail over there that seemed completely independent, but when you bring up your problem, they remember that they learned this little thing and that actually solves your problem. Um, but that, that only works if the teams are working in spaces that are so similar to one another. Um, it's not going to work every single time. But again, the whole point, help each other. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it sounds like you guys are top performers. You don't even talk about it. You just do it. Um, <laughs> we try. U USAA, wow. A uh, uh, top-notch team. It sound, uh, no, with all due, all due respect, you guys, sound, it sounds like a really great design team over there. Um, Thank you. We'll take yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe I should be less critical critique. But I th it's probably just from my background. I don't come from like a graphic design type background. So like, I just don't, I don't like, I didn't get trained in design that way where like the art mm -hmm. teacher just gr destroys your sense of self-worth. And <laughs> I've never had yeah. that happen to me. It's just like, oh, like, no, I did the research. Like, I know that this is a, a sa uh, this is a good bet or a well-placed bet. Like I'm willing to put this in the market and like put my, attach my name to it. Um, Whereas it's, I don't know, it's a little bit different in like the, art, the traditional art school education. But yeah, so it, like what, then like what can I do? Because these, these uh, interviews are more, as much for me as it is for the listener. Like what can I do to frame my perception of critique so that I, I can fix critique with like my participation and stop being such a Debbie Downer about critique. <laughs> There's just a couple things. I think first and foremost is if um, you become a, an advocate for your team to really think about 
and reframe what a critique is, which we've talked about already. But if we reframe it as a session to help each other, it does help alleviate a lot of um, some of the anxieties that people have. Um, vulnerability is more accepted if you know that you're asking for help. Um, and to give that help, you understand, you have to accept that you don't know everything. Um, that's another piece which we haven't really touched on too deeply yet. Um, that's one. Two uh, that I would suggest is being aware of when you are speaking, whether you are the critic or the person getting critiqued, um, that what is being said falls under two categories. Either what is being said is an opinion or whether what is being said is a fact. An example of a fact would be if your organization has a design language system and it says all these types of buttons should be red, that's a fact. That type of button should always be red. We don't need to sit here and debate whether or not that button should be red. The flip side is if you're designing a brand new interaction, hasn't happened before, that's brand spanking new. At that point, you it might be much more of a subjective conversation and subjective discussion because there is no fact to basis on to base anything on it's just opinions at that point and you have to be aware that that is what's happening whether you are the one critiquing or the one receiving critique because it helps you then parse out oh that was just opinion my opinion is just as valid oh that was a fact okay gotta fix that like hardcore have to fix that there's no way around it there's also the instances where um, if you find yourself in a, well, actually, it's right in the middle. And this actually happened to me earlier this week where, um, and I'll use that as an example, where we had all the inputs to this decision were just either or, from technical, from business, from design. It all came down to two different options and all of the input the data, everything was either or. Literally, you just got to make a decision at this point. And so that helps contextualize that decision point as, oh, this is going to be subjective layered on top of a, a, like an objective or factual thing. And we're all aware of that. So we can all talk about that more bluntly and more transparently. And no one's saying, oh, because they're you know, the IT lead, they know what's best. Or, oh, because I'm the design lead, I know what's best. Actually, we all agree that it's either or, so we're gonna pick like what we want <laughs> at that point. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, for just the critiques overall, I think the other tips that I have is for the actual critic, um, and I have notes here, which is why I'm glancing down. Um, yeah, Denise is glancing down right now, working <laughs> on my uh, narration skills. Thank you. Um, you, for the critic, um, two-step process, listen and ask questions um, and come at it from a helpful place. Like, don't ever forget that. Even if you're the design director on the team, even if you're the lead, or even if you're um, a junior designer, everyone's equal. 
And I think that's something that a lot of people forget or a lot of people don't want to um, like subscribe to. But if you subscribe yourself to that, then everyone is able to listen and ask questions. For me, when I'm listening to someone explain their little bit, whether it be just a discussion or there's an artifact or um, a screen design, um, I'm a big fan of writing down keynotes or keywords, which is actually what you've seen me do today, um, to help me remember that was an important point. Like that was a thing that they said that either answers the who, what, why, where, and why, or in, excuse me, and how, or it gives context to scope or just context in general. Um, and it helps one, um, helps you remember what they said, but two, also helps you keep yourself in check. Because if you write it, if you have something to glance back to as someone else is explaining something, you can use that as notes to like guide your feedback and make sure that it's helpful, not 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 helpful, not you're not being yeah. an a-hole, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Unnecessarily. <laughs> Um, coming from like more of like a strat from a strategy standpoint, it's it's really uh, difficult for me to package complexity in a way that's easy to explain. So I don't know like how your team does at USAA if it's like more of a, a strategy approach, but is it just like Val framework? You just frame it like that, and you just have to do the upfront work before the actual critique. Um, to tell that story and that's just that's what's going to your slide deck is what's going to determine the success of the critique or I don't know like and I know that's not a lot to work with but (laughs) um I I think I think it depends um we for the most part we keep it pretty loose and fast um where you can bring some of the strategic work that doesn't have any artifacts and it's just we're just talking about it um but in the event that it becomes because at that point it's kind of obvious to the room if um a particular piece of the work is lacking substance um and it's kind of bringing down the vibe if you want to call it that um at that point the for us for me specifically instead of trying to react immediately to it which i have a sh- very short temper um, so i if, if, <laughs> i work on that <laughs> um you, for me what i find helpful is taking a step back and trying to analyze how did we get here how did this person get here how did this work get here? Why is it lacking substance? Is it because the actual, you know, there's, the answer could be more than one thing. Is it the actual requirements are lacking substance? Like the direction that was given by XYZ person just sucked? Is it the individual themselves that um, are doing the work? Is it because they weren't set up for success? So that could mean they actually don't know how to do this task, but they were asked to do this task. Or um, 
they and the problematic one is they're just refusing to do anything and trying to have an easy day um again that's like a different avenue and discussion where that's more of a management issue than designer Mm -hmm. peer designer so you kind of go down this list and um it's it's a fair conversation to have to point out hey like we were saying earlier um hey this is lacking xyz um and then trying to identify what is what was that critical failure point that happened and you always want to assume like good intentions um so that usually at least in my experience um helps address some of the awkwardness if, if you always assume positive intent um to then try to figure out what happened where was a failure point and how can we help that failure point get resolved so this type of thing never happens again um and critiques are always valuable um another option is at least for us we've made it very um fair to say hey maybe we don't need to keep talking about this maybe this this discussion is actually a one-to-one rather than all six of us on the line or it may it's deserving of a smaller team things like that those are all valid options and it shouldn't be like said or forced in a way that like oh boo you like you did wrong um if you have this framing that we're all here to help then that helps okay yeah my bad yeah let's just have a smaller team discussion so we can have a targeted um response or solution to your problem no those are my two cents yeah (laughs) no uh point taken i um no i really appreciate that uh that uh feedback that um really trying to get to like the root cause like okay well why like you you because it's more it's like an instinctual thing like okay there's something missing from this work how about i just be a curious just a little bit longer before i react right um and that's good book to read for the listener who hasn't read it yet uh the coaching habit that's a really good book um but the whole idea there is to uh, suspend judgment is like you're in, you're you're gonna have alarm bells go off in your brain and you suspend judgment and you stay curious for as long as possible to understand like the root cause of the problem because um, I think uh, I would say I'm gonna go out like on a limb here and say that maybe eighty percent of like bad design work is more of like a process like political thing rather than reflecting bad on the, the the designer like maybe mm-hmm. maybe they just have an overbearing like pm or like an engineer that's staunch and just won't like be a creative technologist with them and there's political roadblocks that are keeping them from going deep and if that's the case which is mostly the case how can you help them navigate those issues to kind of unlock like more like design value and mitigate risk and stuff like that yeah yeah i'll um add to that that um when it comes to navigating that sort of stuff either there's more than one avenue that a designer can take um 
yes, it could be their responsibility to figure it out. And you as a team can help arm that person to figure it out. But sometimes, and it sucks, but sometimes you have to take a step back and evaluate, okay, is this person figuring out how to play the system and play not only the power structure, which is one thing, and then the actual organizational structure, you know, for them to learn everything, is there value in that versus having someone who knows how to handle that come in and handle it this one time and just help them work move forward? Um, so there's also that to be had, that, that discussion to be had. And that should be an open discussion. For us, it is an open discussion. We understand the power structure. We also understand the organizational structure. Um, and we, we help each other play into that. And that's, that's true. I'll call out the, the fact that those two structures exist is true everywhere. It is not true specific to just the company I work at. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Um, and I think going back to the whole like concept of approaching it like a mastermind where you're talking people through their thinking, it's also like sharing resources. Like, okay, hey, let me run interference for you on this. Let me go talk to that person's manager, remove any roadblocks. Um, because yeah, so much design work isn't like the actual craft. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's, it's, yeah. it's mostly not craft. Like the craft is kind of like table stakes. Like we need to be good at what we do. We need to be good at our tools. We need to be good at our methodologies and research skills and, and all that stuff. But it, I, I think it's, uncovering like the root cause of like why like a, a, a piece of work isn't where it needs to be and like addressing it in more of a helpful fashion which mm-hmm. I'm gonna be better at <laughs> um, <laughs> you heard it here um, but uh, dun, dun, dun. yep breakthrough on the way of product design podcast <laughs> uh, well Denise thank you so much for uh, helping uh, joining me on this voyage of self-discovery and <laughs> getting a little bit deeper than um, I'm, I bet you anticipated on the subject of critique. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to ask you a question I ask every guest to just uh, wrap up the episode. Um, yeah. It's the time machine question. And it might okay. apply to, and it might apply what to like what we talked about in this episode, but it could also be anything that you want it to be. But if you had a time machine and you could go back in time, give a younger Denise more uh, advice on like, or you'd go back and change something and alter the course of your career or like your development, what would you change? And you cannot say that you wouldn't change anything because if you did have a time machine, you would. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> totally. So, like, what would you change? Like, what would I would speak up much sooner? Um, and to expand on that a little bit, when you're starting off as a junior designer, and we touched on this actually, um, you may feel that or have tendencies to like be more restrained to follow the guidance of your superiors who must and are must be all knowing and know so much more than you when um after you realize it's all subjective well some of it is subjective you then feel more comfortable pushing back um if i would have just known that from day one if i would have just known that i could speak up and have these conversations much sooner um 
it would have helped a lot of design work <laughs> yeah yeah that, uh, we, I did mention that we we did talk offline about how um, that is probably the hardest part about being a junior is feeling like you, you're you need to pay your dues when you have so much to contribute so early mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then like false belief that like oh well I can't say anything oh this person's a senior so I should just follow their lead because obviously they uh, they get design now because they've been in the industry long enough mm-hmm. I mean like uh, 100% fact and I'm going to take the hot take here there's a lot of seniors out there that are senior because of tenure, not because they're actually good. Um, yep. <laughs> so, like any industry, so always like keep that in the back of your mind for any junior designers listening that um, there is a good chance that they might just be where they're at because they've jumped jobs a few times. But I digress. <laughs> that's a that's a different podcast episode. <laughs> oh yeah, no, and I'm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I might I'm need to take a break before the controversial <laughs> ones. Yeah. Cool. No, that's good. I, yeah, just talk more. Con- contribute more. Like, you, you've yeah. been trained. Do it. Like, appreciate yeah. that answer. Yeah. Um, thank you for having me. It was lots of fun. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, and thank you. Good. Well, um, yeah, Denise, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, you have a good one. Thanks, you too. Hey listeners, thanks again for listening to another episode of The Way of Product Design. If this episode resonated with you, please share it with your network and write a couple lines on why you found it useful. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help the show grow, please leave a review on Apple or Google's podcast platforms. As always, thanks for listening. You have a good one.